Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Dr. Jay Chablani. He's a faculty physician at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. We're going to talk about, I guess, disturbances people have in their eyes. Uh, they may see floaters. You know, they may get age-related macular degeneration. Oh, these kind of problems with eyes I wanted to speak to him about. So welcome, Jay. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And it is a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Oh, great. Excellent. Well, tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to focus on your current uh, clinical work and research. Okay, thanks. So I am a retina specialist, and I've been a retina specialist for almost now 14 years. And I do medical as well as surgical retina. So I see patients with various retinal diseases, such as, uh, you know, the floaters, which you started talking about, macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and venous occlusions. So I do a lot of medical retina work, but also I do surgeries where we do a lot of uh, retinal detachment repair, which is one of the most common surgeries. In addition to that, I do a lot of macular hole repairs as well as some of the gene therapy as well. I am very actively involved in the research. I do a lot of artificial intelligence related research because my primary interest is uh, retinal imaging. So we have an AI lab. I work very closely with the machine learning engineers, and we have been fortunate to work with a great team for the last almost a decade, and we have created multiple algorithms which we are using in our clinical field. Uh, in addition to that, I am a director for clinical trials here at UPMC Vision Institute. So I'm very actively involved in clinical trials, particularly in retina. And very interestingly, now we are doing a lot of gene therapy trials and very exciting time is coming for our patients where we are doing gene therapy for not only for retinal diseases, but also now we have just started a trial for wet macular degeneration. Yeah, that's it. Uh, from- yeah, let's get into some of the, uh, the work you've done. So um, I wanted to ask actually particularly about floaters in the eye. I guess this is a very common occurrence, you know, based on your experience, when and why and how do people get floaters and then what are the treatments? Okay, that's a very common question. So the floaters could just be a physiological changes because of the gel in the eye getting liquefied, but it could also be disease-related, such as you get uh, as a floater because of bleeding in the eye or inflammation in the eye. So I will just start with something very common, which we call it as a posterior vitreous detachment, which is nothing but the gel in the eye, which is called vitreous, starts liquefying as we all grow old. And this gel will get separated from the retina, And 90% of the time, patients will not have any damage on the retina, but only have floaters. So the patients usually come to us with a sudden onset of floaters. What we do is we do their detailed exam. We dilate their eyes, look at the retina, look at the periphery, and make sure there there are no retinal tears. And 90% of the time, there is no damage to the retina. But sometimes when the, ret- when the gel is getting separated, it can create retinal tears or it can cause vitreous hemorrhage, which is bleeding in the eye inside the gel. 
that happens somewhere around 2 to 3% of the time. So what we do is that we look for the retinal tears, we do the laser, and most of the time, this little bit of blood which has come in the eye, it clears up on its own. But the most significant complication of this gel separation is retinal detachment. And the retinal detachment happens somewhere around 1% to 2% after the PVD, which is posterior vitreous detachment. And if the retinal detachment happens, then we will have to do some form of surgical intervention, put the gas bubble or sometimes oil, bu- oil bubble to fix the retina. So the is there a quick, quick question here. So what age does the retina, or sorry, the, um, the vitreous uh, liquefaction happen typically? And is there a prophylactic thing you can do? You know, let's say someone's starting to get floaters, so... You know, perhaps that correlates with their their vitreous material turning to liquid. Can you prophylactically go in with a laser, let's say, so that it detaches cleanly and doesn't tear and doesn't cause problems? A very good question. So this question will have a lot of uh, segments to it. So your first question was, what age does it start liquefying? So usually it start liquefying somewhere in late 50s or so. It can happen earlier as well. It, it you know, it varies quite a bit, but... If you are a high myo, that means if your your prescription is very high negative, then you can have this liquefaction happening much sooner than the other patients. So in that situation, you will have floaters. The most important thing is that if you are a high myo, then you should definitely get your uh, routine yearly exam done that is dilated retina exam. And your question was, can we actually do some prophylactic laser? So... We cannot do any prophylactic laser to decide the liquefaction of the gel, but if you have some weak areas in the retina which can tear apart after the gel separates, we can always do prophylactic laser to prevent the retinal detachment. So let me explain to you this a little bit more. So if you have high myope, then there is a possibility that you can have weak areas in the periphery, which are called lattice degeneration. So if you have lattice degeneration, and then in those cases, we can have prophylactic laser to support the weak areas so that if in future the gel separates, it will not cause retinal detachment because of those weak areas. So this is something which we can do. However, most of the patients who come to us with floaters they don't if they don't have any weak areas we do nothing just we do a routine exam we call them frequently for first two i mean i usually call them once a week or once in two weeks for first two months and then slowly start calling them every six months or so so in those cases we usually do nothing but just observe but we definitely educate our patients that you know floaters are still okay, but one of the symptoms which is more important to be vigilant about is flashes. Because you can have floaters without any damage to the retina, but if you have flashes, that means that probably the gel is pulling part of the retina which is causing flash. So if I have a patient with flash, then certainly we have to do a much more detailed exam and make sure that we are not missing any tears. So for your audience, it is very important to know what is floater and what is flash. So if you have any floaters or flashes, don't ignore. Just go to the emergency or come to any acute eye care clinic. Make sure that the doctors uh, dilate your eyes and take a look into your retina in much more detail. Hmm. So when a retina starts detaching, what can you go blind and and how repairable is a detached retina? Uh, So when the retina starts detaching, most of the times patient will, most of the times, not always, most of the time patient will have some flashes. So it all depends how soon can we fix it. 
So if you are going to your physician with a recent onset of flashes and your doctor says that, hey, there is a retinal detachment, which is pretty localized, you can always just fix it with a gas bubble in the clinic. But sometimes you have to take them to the operating room and put the retina back, put the gas bubble in the eye. It all depends when you reach to uh, your retina specialist and when can we do the surgery because sooner you reach, the better the outcome is. And why so? The reason is that our vision is pretty much defined by the central part of the retina. So if the retina detaches from the periphery and the central part is still attached, so the patient will have good vision, but they will have some symptoms such as feel loss, they feel a curtain is coming from the top. That means the retina is detaching from the periphery, but the central is still attached. So what we do is that we consider this as an emergency case and we fix the retina so we save the central vision. And these cases, they really end up with a great outcome because we saved the central part getting detached. But if the patient comes to us with the central part detached, which is macula, so when we call this as a macula off detachment, then when you do the surgery and the retina is nicely attached, but still the outcome is not as good as it would have happened with a macula on detachment. So that's why it is very important. And this is how we treat our patients that as soon as they call us with any flashes or floaters, the first thing is you come to the clinic. If you see a mac macula on detachment, we take you to the OR on the same day. If it is a macula off detachment, then we try to get the surgery done sooner to recover as much as we should possible. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Hmm. So in most cases, you are able to reattach the retina and the vision yeah. will be preserved or will it be disturbed forever from there? Uh, it all depends that how long the detachment has been. If we have a patient coming soon after the detachment, then the recovery is much faster, much better. But if they have been detached for, say, a really long, long time, uh, say a month or two or longer, then the outcome is not that good. It is not just in terms of the visual outcome, but also the surgical outcome. So those cases tend to have more frequent re detachment. So that's why it is very important to go to your retina specialist or your eye doctor on a regular basis, make sure that, you know, everything is good and we can prevent any retinal detachment or take care of the tears if there are. Um, what about the floaters? So what do they look like to people and do they see them in like daylight or in, uh, at dusk? Like when preferentially do people see them? And again, what, what could be done about them? Uh, so if you have floaters, most of these floaters, you will see that, you know, this all varies a lot between patients. Some people can describe the pattern, how they are. Some people describe that as just a blotch, which is moving constantly. These floaters are more common. I would say some patients can have, they see more in the white background. I would say that most other patients complain about that they see more floaters in the white background. And some patients also see 
during more frequently during the summer because they are more outdoors. They get to see this more frequently. So if you have floaters, just go to your doctor. They dilate your eyes. They make sure everything is okay and that's it. But if you have flashes, which usually happens at night and you will be able to see this as a lightning and, you know, when you're moving your eye and all of a sudden there is a bright light coming in, in that case, that is pretty much like a flash. In that case, we definitely have to dilate and take a look to the retina. Right, but so what are the floaters? Are they bits of um, like gel yes. vitreous that uh, are still floating around? Yeah, so so the vitreous is pretty much uh, made up of collagen fibrils. And with age, you will start having the liquefaction of this gel. So just imagine that, you know, this is a network and there are some pieces which are breaking. So the, fibri- the fibrils are breaking and then you will have some, some clumps of the vitreous which will appear as a floater. So this is pretty much nothing but just the the remnant of the gel which is moving around. So when we do the surgery, we just take care of the floaters and we remove the floaters. Oh, you can you can remove the floaters over like little pinpoint laser bursts or how? Good question. Okay, so most of the time, say that, you know, like I explained earlier that, you know, you have floaters and 90% of the time there is no damage. So what we do, we do actually nothing. Most of the patients get used to this. So if I'm seeing a patient today, then probably in next two to three months, patients are used to the floaters and our brain loves to suppress that image and we get a, we, you know, just make, we just move on. But sometimes the patients are very disturbing. Uh, These floaters are very disturbing to our patients and those situations, we will have to take care of them. So how do we take care of them? There are a couple of ways people do it. One is the laser treatment. I don't means I'm a retina. I'm a retinal surgeon, so somehow I don't uh, feel convinced about the laser treatment. But there are different types of floaters. Say that if they are just single floater which is moving around, you can still deal with the laser. But most of the times, these floaters require surgery, which is pretty much you know doing a sur- doing a surgical intervention, going in the eye, cleaning up the gel, and coming out. How do they clean it up? Do they strain the gel, or what do they do? We just eat up the gel. With our instrument, there is an instrument. This is a surgery called vitrectomy. So what we do is that we just go and cut the vitreous. And while cutting the vitreous, these floaters are actually removed. So the whole vitreous is removed during the surgery. How do you function with the vitreous? I mean, how much of the vitreous is taken out? Uh, so when we remove the vitreous, we fill up with the fluid, which is equivalent to the body fluid. And the body, anyway, will exchange that fluid which happens continuously with the usual body fluid and you don't feel any difference as such. But uh, we usually do not recommend vitrectomy for just for floaters because if we really look at the risk-benefit ratio, then the risk of any surgical intervention is more than the benefit, particularly for the floaters. But I you put a, a hot compress over your eyes and night, what would that do anything? It can help you symptomatically, but it would not really take care of the problem. You will just feel a temporary relief, but it would not really take away the floaters. However, it is very much possible that, you know, with time, these just imagine the gel is breaking up and you are having these floaters. And with time, sometimes we get to hear from our patients that the gel means, you know, these floaters disappeared. They actually did not disappear. It is pretty much the gel is breaking up and the big floater, which was right in your central vision, has now started sinking down. So this is why we usually don't recommend surgical intervention very soon after the PVD or the uh, onset of the floaters, because sometimes the patients get used to it 
or these floaters themselves are breaking apart and settling down and clearing up your central vision and patient feel that the floaters are gone. So it's pretty much the collagen fibril which is breaking apart and, you know, clearing up the field. So is there any way to prevent floaters? I mean, are there dietary interventions that can, you know, I, once once a floater is made, will it never reattach to the, the major vitreum? That's it? There's nothing that can be done or what happens to them? Unfortunately, we really cannot prevent this process because it is pretty much a physiological process. So it has to happen in everybody and and we cannot stop this. It does depend that, you know, how soon or late it happens, how significant it happens. It varies between patients. And I've seen patients coming up with one eye floaters. And when you look into their other eye, which is mandatory for us to make sure that other eye is okay, and they come with one eye complains, but you realize that they already had floater in the other eye, which they never noticed because it was not in their visual field. So it's pretty much possible. Okay. Any other ways to treat floater? As I said, that some of the physicians do laser. This could also be considered. But other than that, I don't think there is any other way we can treat the floater. The best way is to get used to it. But with the laser, I mean, what does that do to the existing floaters? Does it make them smaller? Does it get rid of some of them? Like what uh, does it do? Yes. So so what people claim is that with the laser, they actually just imagine a blob of the vitreous, which is being held by a few of the fibers, right? So with the laser, you go and break those fibers so it starts sinking down. Or you can actually hit at the floater that itself gets break into multiple small pieces and disappears from the field. So this is one way to deal with it. But as a surgeon, I feel that it is not a really a curative treatment, but doing a surgery could actually take it away completely. Right, but it could reduce it, I guess. If you have some real, you know, if you have ones that are in your field of vision that really annoy you. Yes. It's, it's terrible to try to get used to them. If this yes. would at least get them to be smaller or fall away, that would help. Yes, but, you know, I mean, the floaters, as I was explaining, that, you know, they this kind of laser cannot be applied on every kind of floater because if you have, same single floater, I would still suggest, you know, trying the laser and, you know, trying to make it smaller or break it and move it away from the field. But if you have multiple floaters like like a web right in the center, it's sometimes very difficult to break it with the laser. So it also depends upon type of floater and then the, we can define the treatment. Do the, um, the floaters ever reabsorb over time or what happens to them? Do they agglomerate and become like a clump, like a cataract or what happens to them? Uh, sometimes the floaters can break and just, just sink down or they can just be like, you know, move away from the central field. They don't become cataract because cataract is totally a different disease. They just move away from your field or you just get used to it, but they don't like really conglomerate and become a big blob, unlikely. Oh, good. But what is a cataract and do people confuse floaters for cataracts? The uh, the biggest difference is that, you know, the floaters are constantly moving. They move more with your eye movements. But cataract is pretty much just the opacification of the natural lens, which is sitting in the front part, which allows the rays to focus on the retina. So with age, this, this natural lens itself starts getting opacified. And the vision loss, which happens because of the cataract, is usually gradual. And sometimes, you know, depending upon which part of the lens is getting opacified, that can define the vision loss. And whatever happens due to the cataract is pretty much constant. It does not move around like floaters. So this is how we differentiate the change in vision. Hmm. Okay. 
Got it. Um, is there any research into floaters to do more with them, to get rid of them or understand them more? Or is it considered a minor problem that, you know, not much is really done for? I don't think that there is as such any research going on because honestly, we have multiple diseases which require much more attention. That may be the reason. But people keep evaluating, you know, ways to deal with the floaters. Now we have something called in-office vitrectomy, which is being evaluated where, you know, you just do the surgery in the clinic. And this is something which is under research. And, you know, like we were discussing about the laser, there are like people who are evaluating different kinds of laser, which are much more safe. So that could also be considered as a research in floaters. Mm, okay. Yeah, what, what about uh, macular degeneration? You know, from what I understand, it's a very serious condition. What is it and how does it occur? Yeah, so the macular degeneration is one of the most common disease here we see in the U.S. for in the retina clinics. I would say this is one of the most common cause for blindness, uh, retinal cause for blindness. So the macular degeneration is pretty much when you start developing some deposits on the retina uh, and eventually there is bleeding and fluid coming in. So what we do, we typically divide macular degeneration into two forms. One is the dry macular degeneration and one is the wet macular degeneration. So for the dry macular degeneration, there are typically some deposits on the retina which are called drusen. And eventually these deposits are that they start regressing and the retina starts getting thinned out, which eventually leads to a much more advanced dry MD called geographic atrophy or GA. I will come back to this. Wet macular degeneration also could be of a couple of uh, different types. I won't go in detail, but wet macular degeneration is pretty much uh, when you start having some bleeding in the eye or fluid in the eye, which presence with much more acute vision loss to the clinic. So for this disease, wet macular degeneration, we have our multiple kinds of injection available and we have been injecting into the eye for more than now two decades since 2005. We have been doing injections in the eye to stop the progression and save the vision. Well, why does it happen in the first place? Why do these deposits occur and where do they come from? So these deposits are pretty much because of the degeneration of age-related degeneration. So because of there are multiple mechanisms which have been proposed, some are environmental because of, you know, the exposure to UV light or you are genetically pre predisposed to have macular degeneration or there are like inflammatory mechanisms which have been proposed which are causing these deposits. So when these deposits happen, they, they slowly cause damage to the layers of the retina and one of the layers is retinal pigment epithelium. So when these deposits happen on the retinal pigment epithelium, they eventually cause thinning of these layers. And this is what leads to geographic atrophy. So your question is that can we just treat this at this stage? So after, I would say, almost a decade or so of the research, now we have two treatment options available to stop the progression of this GA. And now I think this year we got two drugs approved and we are using here at UPMC. So pretty much these drugs are not treating the disease, but actually stopping the progression. So I would say not stopping, slowing down the progression. So it's pretty much, you know, these when you have GA, you can lose central vision in three, four years or five years by with the help of these injections. We are just prolonging the disease 
by you know pushing this uh, four years to say six years. This area still needs a lot of research, but right now we have these only these two options. Well, what are you injecting, and why does it slow the progression? What is it doing? So, so there is a complement system which is involved in this disease. So by in- inhibiting these complement molecules, we are preventing the damage to these cells. So by doing their injections in the eye, we are inhibiting the complement, which is eventually helping to to slow down the progression. So what, an initial deposit or a lesion forms, and then does it act as like a nucleation site that attracts more complementary material from the vitreum around it? And it just melts and melts. Is that how it goes? Yes. So so there are obviously multiple mechanisms proposed. Some inflammatory mediators start getting attracted to the retinal cells, which can cause the damage. And this is how the macrophages and the complement, they all come together and, you know, cause damage. So, you know, there are there are so many mechanisms and the research is in and around this area. So at this point, we have the complement inhibition is being approved. And there are other treatment options as well, which are undergoing research, and we hopefully will have something getting approved. But I think the big picture is that, you know, the sooner you go to your doctor, the better treatment options they can offer you, the better rehabilitation they can offer you, and that should be the key for success. Well, so um, as it progresses, what happens? The whole retina gets covered in in gook, and then the retina is useless, and you go blind, or what happens? So, luckily, this disease, macular degeneration, is affecting only the central region. And the central area is called macula. So, even in the advanced form, when the central area or the macula is completely involved, your peripheral vision is still okay. But in our routine life, we pretty much use the central area. So, your visual acuity has deteriorated significantly, but you are not as such blind because your peripheral vision is still working. And you can still move around, you can still do a little bit of work, but the central area is affected. So patients are definitely significantly bothered by the poor vision, but you are not as such blind, blind, but you know, your peripheral vision is still there. And there is a lot of research going on in utilizing this peripheral retina to improve the visual acuity of these patients so they can actually have some functional vision for their daily life. Why can't a laser be used to like ablate some of these deposits off the macula and clean it up? Good question. So we, like I would say around maybe 30 years ago, when we did not have these injections or, you know, photodynamic therapy, people have tried doing the laser and the laser was done to these deposits. So with the hope that, you know, they will clear up. But what they learn out of those trials, they realize that the deposits uh, means with the laser, we we were not that successful in cleaning up these deposits. But unfortunately, this laser itself ended up creating problems such as abnormal vessel formation. That means the laser itself ended up converting the dry macular degeneration into wet macular degeneration. So that's why we stopped doing the laser for these deposits. However, uh, recently now we have newer lasers which are available. That is sub-threshold laser. And I know that there is a lot of research going on in treating these deposits by using sub-threshold laser. In fact, a trial from Sydney did show, did use this sub-threshold laser, but they reported no benefit in stopping these uh, deposits. But I think there's there are still some trials going on in Germany where they are trying these sub-threshold laser to prevent the progression of these deposits 
or rather cause the regression of these deposits and stopping the growth of macular degeneration. But we are yet to learn about those uh, trial outcomes. Okay. What are some new innovations that are being researched, you know, in eye health right now, uh, new treatments and for what conditions? Uh, so I think this is a very, very broad question. I think we can have an hour discussion on this. Uh, but I would say that, you know, some of the very exciting things which are going on for eye diseases is primarily application of artificial intelligence, which is one of my area of interest. So, you know, artificial intelligence algorithm being implemented in early diagnosis, treatment, as well as predicting the outcome. Uh, the second thing I would say, the drug delivery for the field of retina is one of the exciting parts. Now people are trying, there are a lot of research going on in posterior segment uh, drug delivery where we are trying to extend the drug delivery for months together. And some of the FDA approvals have already been in place for slow drug delivery system. And the next thing which is going on is the gene therapy. Gene therapy trials are, I would say, Quite a lot of gene therapy trials are going on for multiple diseases in the field of retina where, you know, we are doing clinical trials for macular degeneration, both for dry, wet macular degeneration, inherited retinal diseases. So this is a very, very exciting time for us. Yeah, that's yeah. excellent. Well, very good. If people have any of the troubles that we talked about in this podcast, you talked about an acute eye clinic. What types of doctors should people look for and what should they avoid? Like optometrist, that's no good. That's for glasses. Ophthalmologist, yes, that, that seems to be more along these lines. But are there other designations or names of eye professionals people should look for when they're having these problems? Yeah, that's like really a tough question because it all depends that, you know, which location you are in. I can say that, you know, in Pittsburgh here at UPMC, we have an acute eye care clinic where we are like really having the patients walk into that clinic. You really don't need an appointment. You can just walk in with you, any of your acute complaints, ranging from redness of the eye to the floaters, vision loss, anything. If you have any eye problems, depending upon the severity of the problem, you can go to the ED where I'm sure pretty much most of the places have ophthalmology support in their ED. If not, you can definitely contact your optometrist because I would say that, you know, most of the optometry colleagues are so good to picking up at least the initial problems and referring you to the right people. But if your optometry uh, doctor has already diagnosed you as a macular degeneration, you definitely need to see a retina specialist depending upon the severity, how quickly you should see them. And I'm sure your optometrist will be able to tell you. But if you have access to your comprehensive ophthalmologist, I think they are pretty good and they will be able to guide you through any of the specialists. And fortunately or unfortunately, we have far too many service specialties now in ophthalmology. If you have a plastics problem, we have an oculoplastic surgeon. If you have, if your ophthalmologist is mentioning that, you know, hey, you have uh, some inflammation in the eye, then you have to see a uveitis specialist. They will refer you to a uveitis specialist. If you have any of the retina problems, then yes, you have to see your retina specialist. But I think seeing anybody, at least an ophthalmologist or an optometry, sooner, as soon as you have symptoms, it is the key. Because in I means I always tell this to my patients, the eye problems, or at least I can talk about retina problems, the retina problems are like brain tissue. So if your brain has some injury, it does, it never recovers completely. In the same way, the retina, if there is an injury, it never recovers, recovers completely. That's why the sooner you reach to your retina specialist, the better it is. 
So just be in touch with your ophthalmologist or optometrist and they will guide you to the right people. All right. Well, very good. Well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about all these issues. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.